0: University
1: Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to your podcast, New Books in Economic and Business History. I'm your host, Javier Mejia from Stanford University. And today I have the great pleasure to be with Barry Eichengreen. Barry is Professor of Economics and Political Science at the University of California in Berkeley. He's a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's also a research fellow at the Center for Economic Policy Research. And he's the author, um, among um, a few other people, we're gonna talk more about that in a bit, of a recently published, published book by Oxford University Press called In Defense of Public Debt. We're gonna be talking today with Barry uh, about the book and his career. Let me say hi to him. Hi, Barry. Thanks
0: a lot for being here with us. Good to be with you, Javier, even if you're from that other place down on the peninsula. Yeah, yeah. We have this
1: tension between our universities, but I'm glad that that does not translate in our relationship. Um, You're a very well-known economist, Barry. I'm sure that many of our listeners have read your papers, your books, Um, but probably not many of them know your story. I know that you grew up in the Bay Area. I think that's actually very interesting. But why don't we start with that? Why don't you tell us your story? How did you become a scholar? Why did you study economics? At what point did you realize that you were interested in monetary and financial history? Tell us
0: a bit about that. Well, not only did I grow up in the Bay Area, I grew up, In Berkeley, California, uh, as it happened. My parents were not academics, but they were surrounded. We were surrounded by academics. So I would hear professors' conversations around their Saturday evening dinner party table. I learned that the professor's life has some pleasant aspects to it. It's kind of the only way once you have tenure, you have uh, a secure employment, but you don't really have a boss. Nobody can tell you uh, what to do and when to do it exactly. There are very broad parameters about what you should be doing, but you define for yourself how to do it. So uh, the professor's life uh, had some appeal to me <laughs> early on. I was uh, attracted to history, and my interest in history goes way back, but I found uh, doing history without a framework, just reading history, difficult, and uh, if you look at how historians uh, practice their craft, they all use a framework, different theoretical, analytical frameworks, sometimes visible, other times less visible. But I found a framework in in economics. So um, I thought the, the models and methods of economics as applied to history uh, helped me make sense, helped me order the m- messy disorder that is raw historical material. And uh, I've been an economic historian ever since. So I had one inspiring teacher of economic history when I was an undergraduate, and that turned out to be a finishing PhD student from none other than Stanford University, one of Professor Paul David's students. And from that point, I thought putting economics and history together made a lot of sense, and I did that right from the outset of my my graduate school PhD studies. Nowadays, very few people go to PhD programs in, in economics planning on doing economic history. They have to discover it, or we have to convert them, win them over. But um, I, I think I had discovered it before I got to the PhD program at, at Yale, and I've been pursuing it ever since.
1: Can, can I ask you more about that? I'm, I'm curious about how was the environment in. And- economics towards, um, economic history, when you were a grad student, was it perceived as a appropriate or convenient path of research just as any other? Do you think that that has changed? Uh, what's your perspective on that?
0: Yale University, uh, when I was there, was a little unusual in that they had a program in economic history where you were You did your PhD coursework in economics, then you took a year off and studied in the history department before you went back to your home department economics to finish, or you could do it uh, from the other direction. So my longtime Berkeley colleague in the history department, Jan de Vries, did his coursework in history, spent a year in the economics department, went back to history to complete his PhD. He's in history, I'm in economics, but we both had the same dissertation supervisor. So that was a somewhat unusual program. And I think we economic historians got a lot of support from uh, other economics faculty. So the famous Nobel laureate at Yale when I was there, Jim Tobin, was very supportive of what I did and other economic historians um, did. And there were people like the great American historian, C. Van Woodward, who were very supportive of us economists when we went the other way, and quite a number of on the economic side, quite a number of uh, well-known economic historians came out of that program when I was there in the late 1970s, early 1980s. I won't name names for fear of leaving someone out. Economic history was always a relatively small, specialized subdiscipline within economics, and uh, you know there was there's always attention in terms of who your audience is. Are you speaking writing for other economic historians? Or are you trying to write for the larger economics and history professions? So if you're trying to write for the larger economics profession. You've got to rely more heavily on on theory and metrics and all that. If you're trying to write for economic historians, they want to know more about the time and the place, the setting, the institutions. So that's a a balance. How how have things changed over time? I like to think that uh, economic history has a larger audience within economics now and garners more respect within economics now than it did some years ago, because of the data revolution, you know, we can digitize and manipulate large amounts of, uh, historical data. So the complete count us decennial censuses from the 19th and 20th centuries are digitized and can be linked. You can follow individuals and families. Over time, we have the computing power to analyze data sets with millions of historical observations. So I think the fact that economics is now even more of an empirical discipline than it used to be. When I came up, the theorists kind of occupied the high ground. in They were the high status people in economics. You can argue now that empirical work has regained The high ground and that's good for economic history
1: totally i mean it's very inspiring your perception of how the field is uh then evolving into um a space of a larger audience and and higher interest in the community and i would like to take some of the things that you were describing um regarding the tension that economic historians face when addressing uh their audience, right, to to begin our conversation around the book, right? Because this is a book that is um, of potential interest to a very large audience, right? This could be a book that an economic historian wants to read because they want to know more about public debt, but also a policy maker would uh, be really interested in reading this book and extracting specific lessons from that. And maybe the first thing that I would like to hear from you is, what is this particularity that public or sovereign debt has, right? You begin the book pointing out that it's not just as any regular debt. Could you say a bit more about that?
0: So we um, wrote this book, I think, to try to redress the balance we started before COVID-19 which kind of made the case for us that when a state faces an existential crisis, it needs to mobilize all available resources. And in the short run, it can do that only by borrowing. And uh, so there is this positive aspect to public debt, as well as the negative forbidding aspect that uh, you, you see in the debt clock on the side of a building in Times Square that is continuously updating how much your family owes in terms of the government's debt. So we tried to um, trace that over a long period of time and show how public debt had been used to fight defensive wars. The government of Ukraine is issuing bonds at the moment, how it was used by Italian city-states like uh, uh, Siena and uh, uh, others to uh, ward off the Black Death, fight pandemics, and how it's been used over time to sometimes well, sometimes poorly, to foster economic development. Uh, so the book is aimed at a broad audience. We we tried to speak not only to uh, policymakers but to the informed public, so I always hold readers of uh, The Economist or The Wall Street Journal in my mind when I put fingers to keyboard or pen to paper. Uh, There are a couple of equations in the book where we try to explain the debt dynamics, the, the determinants of rising and falling debt levels, but we suppress the temptation to talk in terms of equations insofar as possible.
1: Right, right, right. And now that you mentioned that the dead has played this important role fighting wars, that um, seems to be an important part of your description of the origins of well-established market for foreign dead, right? That takes place specifically in Europe and, well, I guess what we could call the early modern era. Um What's the particularity of Europe during this period? Uh, Why is this happening? I don't want to make this one of those big conversations about why the West, the net, other parts of the world, but um, how do you think about this?
0: That's right. So one does not see uh, comparable levels uh, uh, of public or sovereign or state debt in other parts of the world, in the Ottoman Empire or... Uh, in China until centuries after its appearance, after the development of markets and public debt in Europe. So we had to make that case carefully. Uh, Europe-centric history is out of fashion. History for too long was overly Eurocentric. And then, of course, came what you and I like to call the California School of history, of economic history, that. It expressly compares the, the the West with the East and the West with China in particular and argues that along a number of dimensions, China was ahead of the West for a long period. China invented clocks and big sailing ships and gunpowder and, and, and so forth. So, we had to be careful in, in shifting the focus back to Europe where issuance and markets in public debt are precocious where they develop first, and the reason for that is Europe's distinctive political geography. If you look at it in the early modern period, you see that the continent is divided up into hundreds of territorial states and city states, all of which are butted up against one another, uh, bringing them into bor- conflict over borders and and and, and such contrasts with China, which was uh, unified basically as a single empire uh, more than 2,000 years ago. So uh, that different political geography led to uh, uh, different public debt histories, and that different, different political geography was rooted in different physical geography. So Europe is a continent divided by multiple mountain ranges and river valleys and natural obstacles to uh, territorial political unification. Whereas China uh, east of the Himalayas is basically a great plain where uh, it was possible for a single imperial government to expand its control, build a great wall and keep invaders from the outside safely away to the north. So the the need to issue debt in order to fight wars um, didn't arise in the same way in china and more broadly in in other parts of the world than europe
1: okay okay i think that it's one of the things that i found um particularly interesting of the book is this um um, like profound reflection of political factors behind the the evolution of um monetary and, and fiscal phenomena right and 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 I would like to move a bit in that direction right so one of the, i guess the very long-term facts that you describe in the book which is great pointing out again the fact that brings all this long-term data from many different different parts of the world which i think it's it's very uh insightful is this long-term trend of interest rates uh down right so interest real interest rates are declining if you see the very long term Um, and you have some discussion about why is that the case you focus on some periods more than other in particular in the um, early modern era and how that was related to the consolidation of these markets for debt but could you say it's more
0: more about that well, I should start by crediting Paul Schmelzing, who's a PhD from Harvard, a postdoctoral fellow at Yale, soon to be a assistant professor elsewhere, who put together these very long-term data on interest rates, on government bonds, on, on sovereign debt, and, 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 and traced their gradual downward movement over a period of 700 years. So we've been talking recently about how uh, the level of interest rates has declined over the last three or four decades. Some people refer to that phenomenon as secular stagnation, but Paul puts that in a in, in, in very long-term perspective. Um, and I, I think it reflects uh, uh, a couple of things. First of all, the politics, as you alluded to a moment ago, that with the creation of Uh, checks and balances on arbitrary action by the sovereign. Sovereigns uh, historically had to compensate their bankers by paying them high interest rates because the sovereign could unilaterally renege on his obligations. He was the highest earthly power. Nobody could tell him not to until there was a separate branch of government, a legislature or a parliament uh, whose permission had to be obtained in order to raise taxes or increase government spending or whatever. So um, you were one of your Stanford colleagues, Barry Weingas, together with uh, um, Douglas North made this argument influentially like 30 years ago. They pointed to the Glorious Revolution in England as case in point. Uh, There's been a lot of debate about exactly what happened to interest rates around that particular revolution, but I think the broader point is correct that uh, um, with the development of political systems in which the creditors, the bondholders also have a voice, and it was creditors, bondholders, landowners who served in these early parliaments and legislatures in England, in Holland, elsewhere, you saw the cost of borrowing interest rates begin to come down over time. The Dutch case is a remarkable one between 1600 and 1700. You see the real interest rate on Dutch government bonds declining from on the order of 8% to 2% when they put their estates general, their legislature in place. And secondly, markets in these bonds begin to develop so that they can be traded. Uh, The bonds become more liquid. If people need to turn their investment into cash, they can do so, which makes holding bonds, you know, on those days when they don't need cash, more attractive. People are willing to bid more for the bonds. Interest rates on them are correspondingly lower. So the development of those markets eventually backstopped by a liquidity provider of last resort, namely the central bank, is another important element of of, uh, why these interest rates come down. So I think it's a combination of uh, political factors, like you cited, together with economic and financial development.
1: Do you have any particular opinion on the most recent part of that trend? We're going to get back to the history of the book, and I know you're book does not exactly address with the shortest term uh, conjuncture but it seems that we are very close to what could be a natural lower bound to the decline of interest rates do you think that we're going to be in this equilibrium for very long is this just a short-term trend and eventually we're going to go back
0: to whatever was a previous equilibrium if, if you look at the behavior of um, real interest rates uh, uh, adjusted for inflation, they bounce around a lot because the inflation rate can bounce around, around a lot. But I uh, underlying that are uh, slowly moving trends. So interest rates were cr- slowly trending downward on average most recently since the early 1980s. Um, and I think there is reason to think that they have now more or less hit bottom and that trend may begin to reverse and we'll see a gradual trend in the direction of higher real interest rates. Demographic factors point in that direction. Uh, savings rates and high-saving economies like China may come down to more internationally normal levels. There may be unusually high levels of investment for a couple of decades now because of the need to uh, finance what we wrote in the book about the green and digital transformations, but we can add increased military spending now in a variety of countries. So changes in demography and savings behavior and investment behavior may all now begin to reverse those trends, and that will make Managing our inherited debts more challenging. So we don't deny the existence. You know, we uh, emphasize positive aspects of using the instrument of public debt, but we don't deny the challenges we're going to now face. We used it for good reason in the COVID episode, but now there's a, 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 a management legacy, a management challenge that will become more difficult with higher interest rates.
1: Let's, let's talk about that. You, in the book, talk about, I guess, two historical episodes that bring different lessons of how to deal with the management of that, right? So um, you show how in the 19th century, or at least the last part of the 19th century, when you look at the UK and you look at France and the US, what you see is basically a decline of debt as share of the of the gdp right so basically those countries and it seems to be the case of some other advanced economies apparently were able to decline to reduce their debt Um,
0: why was that the case what was happening in these places during this period Uh, heavy public debts in britain In the United States, after our civil war, in France, after the Franco-Prussian War were brought down, the debt-to-GDP ratio was brought down to much lower levels. In Britain, over more than 90 years, between 1820 and the outbreak of World War I, 1914, by running budget surpluses, by running what economists refer to as primary budget surpluses, where you ignore uh, money spent on debt service for present purposes. Um, So the subtext here is the question, Britain could run budget surpluses year after year for fully 90 years. Do you think we could do this in the United States or other countries? In our position today, Britain was able to do it then because uh, the franchise who could vote, who could sit in parliament, was uh, limited to men with property who met uh, a property threshold, a certain uh, held a certain amount, owned a certain amount of land, and often also owned government bonds. So these were people who were interested in being sure that the government maintained and enhanced its capacity to service debt by retiring uh, outstanding debt where it was dangerously heavy. Uh, Part of it was uh, the recognition that uh, there might be another war uh, or need to borrow again. In the future, the French retired their debt in part because they were looking forward to the risk of another war perhaps with uh, Germany. So they wanted to restore their capacity to, to borrow. And that was enough to galvanize the political process to run budget surpluses rather than uh, than deficits. So uh, the point being that political economy is very different today. It's not only the creditors who have a voice. Politics are arguably more polarized than they have been in a long time, making it hard for uh, parties to agree on a on a debt management strategy and to sustain it over long periods of time. So uh, it's clear that how they successfully dealt with their heavy debts in the 19th century is that tactic alone is not going to work today. After World War II, just to continue, uh, governments reduced their debt to GDP ratios mainly by growing the denominator of the ratio, by growing their economies. Uh, The third quarter of the 20th century was the fastest period of fastest, most rapid economic growth in in the history of the world. So that successfully brought down debt ratios. Are we going to be able to grow our economies? as quickly as we did in that period when uh, there was a backlog of technology available to us as a result of the Great Depression and World War II. I'm skeptical. So I'm not sure that avenue exclusively is gonna be available to us either.
1: I wanna ask you regarding this. So, I mean, it's fascinating to compare those two periods, right, like how you could have a Consistent reduction of debt in um, for so long in many of these countries, and then just the opposite trend in which we're seeing increasing debt levels for a very long term. And besides these factors that you describe associated with the political economy of the period. Do you think that there has been a change in the ideas behind how people think about debt, how much we consider reasonable debt, what's the purpose of that debt? And I'm asking you because in a certain way, you're trying to influence that conversation. So I guess I'm interested in your perspective of how that conversation has
0: evolved over time so if you stop someone on the street they will draw an analogy between the household budget constraint a household has to live with it in its means and the government budget constraint where if you stop an economist in the hallway of the economics department they'll say the two budget constraints are not exactly uh, analogous with one to one another so in our uh Ever since Keynes's general theory, I think views uh, of public debt have evolved, are different from uh, Adam Smith's view that governments face the same budget constraint as households and have to repay everything that, that they borrow sooner or later. Um, how much debt is safe? Views of that change as well they should change because how much debt is sustainable depends on the level of interest rates. We were touching on that earlier. It depends on the rate of growth of the economy. When economists talk about uh, sustainable levels of debt these days, they use the shorthand R minus G, where R is the real interest rate paid on the debt and G is the real growth rate of the economy. So um when circumstances change use uh, uh, of public debt change as well both because of uh, um changes in, in economic theory Keynes and his general theory and because of changes in current economic conditions
1: and can I, I I don't want to put you in the spot but I'm curious like now that we're talking about um changes in economic theory do you have any thoughts about these ideas that people would call modern monetary theory, uh, which many would argue that it's an extreme position regarding how much debt, for instance, a government could take. Do you have any position regarding those type of ideas? Do you yeah. think that like part of the large discussion we should take them very seriously? I don't know. I want to hear what you think about that.
0: I find it difficult to talk about modern monetary theory because it means different things to different people. It's hard to pin down exactly what we're talking about. Uh, My interpretation of it is that uh, governments can borrow unlimited amounts insofar as the central bank is there to up the resulting public debt without inflationary consequences. So modern monetary theory became uh, influential or pe- remarked upon at least in the period when central banks were buying, buying up government debt big time without inflationary consequences. So the irony is number one, that this is a, a model or a view of the world that uh, that does obtain sometimes in some places, but not in others. Uh, if you're in a liquidity trap situation with interest rates becalmed at zero and no inflation on the horizon, then some of the implications of modern monetary theory do follow. But the irony is it no sooner became influential or remarked upon than, we, than that period ended. Now we're in a more inflationary world, where it's no longer the case that central banks can engage in asset purchase programs without inflationary consequences
1: that's that's very interesting and i mean your response opens the door to asking you something i i was wondering while i was reading your book and is related to the i guess the variance across types of debt. so you spend quite a bit of time arguing that the type of debt that a country has matters, right? So the type of currency in which the debt is uh, issue, well, the features of the government that issues say the market where it is traded. Um, how do you think about that in general? Like how much do you think that uh, fiscal and monetary advice should be uh, narrowed to different types of countries, right? Should we have a certain type of uh, protocol for developing regions that it's different from the one of advanced economies?
0: What are your uh, thoughts on this? Uh, So I have a couple of thoughts here. One goes back uh, 25 years to when Ricardo Hausman, now at Harvard, and I were working on foreign currency denominated debt and we wrote about the problem of original sin, as we called it, where uh, it appeared that many governments around the world were able to sell to foreign investors only bonds denominated in dollars uh, or uh, very short-term debt. And we observed that uh, uh, having your debt denominated in someone else's currency puts you at, the, at great risk if the, if the exchange rate moves, uh, selling only short-term debt puts you at rollover risk if the appetite for your bonds dries up abruptly. And uh, we argued that it was going to be a long haul. It was going to be difficult for uh, emerging market governments to convince international investors to buy long-term bonds denominated in their own currencies. So a subset of emerging markets set out down that road and, and have done relatively well such that they are able to sell market long-term domestic currency denominated debt where they uh, are able to sell it to local investors. I think it makes their financial position much more secure. When they sell it to foreign investors, though, those foreign investors still, uh, then it's going to be the foreign investors who worry about the exchange rate moving and uh, American investors worrying that their peso denominated debt is going to lose value if the peso depreciates against the dollar. So Yun and colleagues at the Bank for International Settlements have shown that uh, local currency denominated debt in the hands of foreign investors can still be a, a financial risk to emerging market governments. On your other point. Um, I do think that uh, developing countries with weaker uh, fiscal systems, less ability to raise tax revenues, other things equal, have less capacity to service debt. And therefore, they should keep their debt to GDP ratios lower, for example, than uh, advanced economies with much more um, elaborate fiscal systems able to mobilize more resources. There were a few economists years back who tried to figure out exactly what that magic number was, that um, emerging markets shouldn't have debt-to-GDP ratios above 35%, and advanced economies shouldn't have debt-to-GDP ratios above 90%. We've learned that there are no magic numbers, and what is safe depends on those factors you and I were talking about before. Uh, real interest rates, growth rates of the economy, but also the the nature and the scope of of the fiscal system.
1: Right. This is fascinating. I'm I'm as you know I'm Colombian and we're having this uh not only in Colombia, well in Latin America, this entire shift in um, in politics and, and that's coming with changes in the conversation around how we should treat uh fiscal and monetary policy and like there's so many like profound insights in in what you're saying uh, about how we should think about this so um, i'm very happy that you're bringing up this 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 issues but um let me ask you i guess a general question and with this we're starting to come to uh the last part of our our conversation and it's about broader lessons from your book. So the book has several sections that are literally titled lessons on this period. What do you think are the biggest lessons that um come out of the book for I guess both the conversation around debt but also the way in which we should uh think about um fiscal and, and monetary policy.
0: That um, public debt is a powerful and valuable instrument to deploy in emergencies, be those wars, pandemics, financial crises, uh, or whatever. Um, We have just passed through a period marked by successive crises. So we've uh, utilized that weapon and kind of depleted our reserves. If you will, so I do think it's imperative now, to uh, for governments to restore strengthen their capacity to borrow, uh, especially given that that capacity will be strained going forward by those higher interest rates. Um, the ways that governments restored that capacity in the past are not going to be available to the same extent today because growth rates are going to be slower than in the mid-20th century. Budget surpluses are going to be harder to sustain than in the mid-19th century. So I think we're going to have to follow a combination of tactics running budget surpluses or minimizing the budget deficit insofar as possible trying to uh, accelerate the rate of growth of the economy, and I think there are opportunities through those digital and green revolutions to find productive investments that will translate into faster growth. And uh, modest inflation, avoiding deflation, is probably the more politically correct way of putting it. Avoiding deflation is helpful from this point of view as well. And uh, staying the course and being lucky also. So uh, the 19th century was not entirely a period of peace, but uh, the Britain uh, was involved in the Crimean War in the middle of the century and the Boer War at the end of the century, but it wasn't engaged in uh, extensive military spending all through the, the period. Uh, 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 a future that's not marked by crises to the same extent as the recent past was marked by crises would be helpful as well. That's, you know, hoping against hope.
1: That's very interesting. You know, is not very common to hear experts uh, pointing out the importance of randomness and stochastic events, right? So um, I I totally agree with you. Let's hope that we have a less eventful um few decades ahead let me ask you one final question um and i ask this to all my guests as this podcast is on on books and academia in particular in economics has moved since well a long time ago to uh formatting which articles are are more important right um so i want to ask you what do you think is the role of books and the generation of knowledge why writing a book you have written not just this book but many others and you're actually probably one of the most prolific and successful economists writing books um why do you do it uh, do you think that there's space for that in the future um how does that feed into the
0: larger scientific discussion um, i want to hear what you think about that so I think about the role of books uh, in a couple of ways. Number one, it, it allows you to develop a, a more complete argument uh, than you can within the confines of a, of a journal article. We see in economics increasingly that submissions to journals are very long. They almost look like books sometimes these days. So as a referee, I've seen the 90-page submission where the author says the last 60 pages will become an online appendix. So in a way, articles are becoming more like books nowadays, uh, reflecting the recognition that you need to develop the argument more fully, where more fully may mean for some people, more robustness checks, more regressions. For other people, it may mean Uh, developing additional dimensions uh, of the argument. Secondly, I think of of books as a vehicle for communicating with a broader audience, that you can use uh, narrative methods which may take up more space than an equation, but you can communicate with many more people who prefer words over symbols, mathematical symbols. Finally, uh, I I, I do think that books are important in the education of economists nowadays. So for some years now, I've been teaching a graduate course in economic history where we read 15 books in 15 weeks. At the moment, I have uh, a dozen students in that course. It's an excuse for me to catch up on 15 books. That I need to read. But we also read some modern classics in, in economic history. When the pandemic struck, we had to move to Zoom, of course. And we realized that we could invite the authors. So the format of the course became, uh, we get together for an hour and analytically discuss the book. And then in the second hour, we discuss it with the author. So that um, makes reading these books even more appealing.
1: That's fascinating. um I shouldn't say this publicly, but I would have loved to be at Berkeley and take your class. Um, well very thanks a lot this um this was very interesting. I really appreciate your uh, time. Um, I highly recommend your book. Um, I really think that there are many lessons for many people um, so I really think that. It's worth checking out. It is, again, in defense of public debt. Um, It is published by Oxford University Press. Um, And, well,
0: thanks a lot, Barry. Xavier, thank you for having me.